The scripture today is Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this, from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all, as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. Amen. Thank you, Diana. We are living in an incredible time of great unrest. Do you agree with that? I just hear time and time again about how angry people are. Someone was telling me about getting cut off and you know, being so angry at them for, for getting cut off or the anger that's expressed online. or How about the corruption that we hear about all the time? Corruption across the po political spectrum. I mean, things that come out and it's not just older folks or younger folks. Like, I'm shocked when I read about things that the people my age are doing. You know, we were supposed to be the generation that was going to do, start doing things right. <laughs> right. Of course, that's a lie. We see all those things, just uh, all these reminders of the time that we live in, a time of great unrest, of great anger and mistrust, of great corruption. So the question for us, the question I ask you today is, how should we respond to this time? That's really the question we need to ask, isn't it? How should we respond? What, what's our responsibility? As citizens, you could maybe say, what's my responsibility? Citizens of the United States. But what about as Christians? What's our responsibility as Christians to this time of great unrest and mistrust and corruption and anger and fear and high anxiety? What are we supposed to do? Should we hide? Isolate? Say, well, this is the space where we're doing everything right and we'll just push everybody away. Should we fight? You know, there's examples in Scripture. Should we fight people and really combat them and, you know, shake them loose? Knock some sense into them? Should we do that? <laughs> Garnan's laughing. I think she says no. Should we flee? You know, there was a group of Christians after Jesus uh, was on earth and crucified and resurrected, there was a group of Christians called the Essenes who literally went and lived in caves to 
preserve themselves from the corrupt generation. That literally happened. John the Baptist was kind of related to those same folks. That's what they chose to do. What should we do in response to this corrupt generation that we find ourselves living in? I don't know what your answer to that question is, but it is the question that will define, that the answer to that question will define the rest of our lives. It will define the character and nature of our faith in Jesus. It will define the quality of how we spend the rest of our time, be it 10 more years or 30 more years. We are entering into some really challenging times. Is that a controversial thing to say? No. <laughs> we all know it. Unfortunately, we're, uh, we're reminded of this day in and day out that our generation is corrupt, it's perverse. It's faithless. Guess who also used those words? Peter used those words. Peter did. And Jesus used those words actually too. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 41, He called the generation that He was living in, He called them perverse and faithless. And Peter in this dramatic speech when he was trying to make sense to people of saying, this is what we've seen and experienced with the person of Jesus. He was the Messiah that was talked about in the Old Testament. This is what happened. You guys crucified Him. Now you need to repent. And the people say, what should we do? As they see the Holy Spirit being poured out on, on all the believers, they say, what should we do? And He says, repent, all of you, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about that last week and how, uh, how life-changing and exhilarating it would have been to receive the Holy Spirit and to feel convicted in that moment and how do we respond to our conviction. But it's important to see that not everybody was convinced in that moment of conviction. It says right here that Peter, let me read it again. Peter talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit and he, he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them saying, Saying this, so first of all, not everyone was convinced Peter had to continue talking to them and saying, this is what's going on. Uh, this is why you should repent and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He testified with many other arguments and exhorted them saying, save yourselves from this what? Corrupt generation. <laughs> Friends, the issue of, uh, of a corrupt generation and people's faithlessness and uh, the mistrust that we have uh, among one another. I don't know if you believe this. It's not new to our time. It's not a new phenomenon for God's people to say, what should we do when we're confronted with this craziness that we're seeing? It's not a new thing. The change in our time today is that we can see the, the realities of our world all day long. All day long we can be exposed to it and we can say, what's those corrupt people doing today? <laughs> what are they doing now? Let me tell you, they're wrong. My group is right. So on and so forth. Peter lived in a corrupt time, in a perverse time. Corrupt means this. See if it relates to our life today. Immoral, crooked, and full of mistrust. So what are we supposed to do? What should be our response? Who should we vote for? I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> That's too controversial. This is Peter's suggestion. He says, save yourselves. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He says, 
Repent of your own sinfulness. Repent of the evil that happens within your heart. Repent of your own unfaithfulness. Repent of your own corruption. Maybe it's not to the level of the atrocities that we see across the world, but repent. Believe in Jesus. Receive the forgiveness that He offers and enter into this incredible life in the Spirit. Let me read to you what else happens that day. He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So, those who welcomed His message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I thought it was really interesting as I was reading this, of, um, first of all, Peter telling the people, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Not asking anybody else He's not saying, have somebody else come in and save you, which is a thing in our world today. Somebody else should come and help me in my life instead of me taking responsibility for myself. He's not saying that uh, you should put all your faith in the Roman government to take care of, of, every, of all the corruption. He's saying, save yourselves. And then the next thing that we read in response is that they're baptized. And once they have the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit living within them, remember Jesus' Spirit that raised Him from the dead, then they devoted themselves. Meaning they attached themselves, the wholeness of their being, everything about them, they gave to this way of life. To teaching and to fellowship. Now let me be clear for a second. Teaching... It was not saying they, they just sat down and listened to a really good sermon every week. It's a good practice. And if you listen to other preachers' sermons during the week, that's a good practice as well. And by fellowship, they didn't just mean uh, having coffee before or after service. That's controversial. I'm not trying to go there. <laughs> they, they weren't talking about having potlucks every once in a while. Or a barbecue. These two words are actually paired together the apostles' teaching and fellowship describing a close, close bond that people had, like a really in-depth, close relationship with one another that was based upon what the apostles had to say. Now, they weren't teaching the Bible like we have today. They did not have, uh, they had the Old Testament Scriptures, but they did not have any of the New Testament Scriptures. The apostles were teaching from their first-hand experience and what they were trying to help people understand is how to make sense of this thing that we call following Jesus. So literally, their bond that they had together was this shared experience of trying to make sense of what it meant to be a Christian. Like, how do we do it? How do we let God change our hearts and our lives? How do we do it? That was the shared bond, was their devotion to Jesus, which they expressed their baptism, and then they're making sense of it for the rest of their lives. And they needed one another to do that. They needed each other. But it was also the most powerful place where they could experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what happened? Well, that day, 3,000 people were baptized. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? Only the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit among God's people could do such an incredible thing. Later, we read of another day where 5,000 people were added in the faith. Baptized and then committed to this shared way of life. Next week, we're going to talk about breaking of bread and the prayers. Today, we're focusing on 
the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the close bond that was formed in that space. So what happened after that? Well, we've got a little gap here which, with what I want to point out to you, but uh, during 100 A.D., Christianity actually became illegal. And Christians were persecuted. Now, what do you think happens when Christians are persecuted? Do they fight and win victorious battles? Do they hide and say, well, we're not going to believe in our faith, we're not going to live it out anymore? Actually, what we see when Christians are persecuted in the world is the opposite happens. Take a look at this, what happened. Let's see if this works. Praise the Lord. Uh Uh-oh. Wrong way. Here's the earliest days of the church. This is copyright from a book called The Forgotten Ways by Alan Hirsch. In 100 A.D., there were as few as 25,000 Christians in the world. 25,000. And that's when persecution started. And 200 years later, there were up to 20 million Christians in the world. They couldn't gather like we gather, friends. They didn't have the Bible like we have. Believe it or not, they didn't have podcasts. (laughs) I love podcasts. They had none of the things that we have in our lives today. And yet, instead of shrinking like Christianity is shrinking in our country today, in America, 60% of 350,000 churches in America today are declining. 30% are just swapping members. So maybe Sandy and uh, Zion Lutheran send somebody over to us and we send somebody over to them and we say, all right, well really we just swapped. And only 10% of churches in America today are actually reaching new people. And we have everything that we need. We have an abundance of resources and an abundance of time. We don't have to be afraid of persecution at all, but yet Christianity is declining here in America. How do you make sense of that? Is it the fault of the corrupt generation? I don't don't know. I think it's probably pretty complicated. All I know is that when it was illegal to be a Christian, this is what happened. And then in in uh, 310 A.D., Constantine, who was the emperor of Rome, was baptized himself. And then we entered into a whole new era of Christianity. That's when we started to see this kind of service pop up because it was the thing to do. It was legal. It was actually, Christianity became more of like an upper class kind of experience. And uh, from that time on, nothing would ever be the same. Except for when this guy named John Wesley came came onto the scene. Do you know John Wesley? Remember him? The founder of Methodism? Do you know that John Wesley, he wasn't intending to start a new denomination like uh, we are, are blessed to experience today. John Wesley wanted to start a renewal movement within the Anglican church. That was his goal. And he came up with this uh, way of being in relationship that was very much like uh, the early church. It was a requirement. Can you believe this? If you wanted to be a Methodist, it was a requirement to be in what he called a class. It was like a group of 10 to 12 people who had to learn together, like read the Scriptures, learn together like what did it mean, pray for one another, and try and flesh out this thing, this common bond of we want to live our lives for Jesus. So that was a requirement to be in a class, and then you could also be in what's called a band. Three to five people 
where you were like praying for one another, where you're confessing your sin to one another, which is basically unheard of in our world today. <laughs> Anybody want to come up confess sin right now? Just for a little bit? Randy? No, no he's saying, emphatically saying no. John Wesley actually made it a requirement if you were going to be in, it, uh, called a Methodist, it, you were required to do this. To be in a class or a band. To flesh out what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and take that seriously. So what do you think would happen then if, if it was a, a requirement like that? Probably would shrink, right? I mean, I know that if we made a commitment today, or if we said, you, Kyle, you have to be in a small group. You are in a small group, so <laughs> you'd be okay. You have to be in a small group, and the rest of you have to be in small groups as well. Boy, we would shrink so fast. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I'm guessing like 10 people would come back the next week. So what do you think happened when uh, John Wesley made, it this, made this requirement? Let's see. Darn it. This is Methodism in America. So in the year 1800, there were 65,000 members, you would call it. It was 1% of the population. And in 1850, 50 years later, it had grown to 1,260,000 members. 5% of the population. That is 200% growth. Isn't that amazing? And this was a time when America was pushing west along the frontier. And what I think was the reality is that people were so starving for connection with other people. They were so starving to make sense of the things that they were experiencing in their day-to-day -day lives and that when they heard the Gospel, when they heard that they could follow Jesus with one another, that was actually really good news. And they committed their lives to this experience. So in Methodism, this is what happened. And you, so then you might say, well, but that was back in the 1800s. There wasn't anything uh, like what we experience today. They didn't have social media and all those different things. The same kind of growth is happening in China right now. The same kind of growth where in China, Christians are persecuted. It's illegal to be a Christian. They're trying to snuff out all religion. And so, uh, if you have a church service like this, which sometimes they try, the Chinese government might allow it to happen. But then at some point, they'll come in and shut it down and arrest the leaders, throw them in jail, maybe torture them, maybe kill them. That's the kind of persecution that has happened. But the same kind of exponential growth is happening in China where the faith is persecuted. Some estimates say that in 50 years or so, China might actually have more Christians than America. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's really hard to believe, especially for those of you who remember the days of a full church. You can remember that. But friends, what I'm trying to tell you today is that the common bond during these movements that we've seen in the past, going back to the earliest days of the church, uh, to the beginnings of our denomination in America, to where the church is growing now, where, where more and more people are becoming Christians, the common bond is a deep desire to grow closer to Jesus and to one another. The places where Christianity is really thriving is where there is a deep desire in the people to grow closer to Jesus and grow closer to one another. To make sense of this life that we call being a Christian. Of following Jesus. Well, like, what does this even mean? And because it's hard, people are forced to like say, well, we need each other. I can't do this on my own. 
I can't just learn this and do this myself. And, and I believe it to be true. I believe that God's Holy Spirit is living within me. And so I want to I figure out how to make this work. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, think about this for a second. If me and Trevor decide that we are going to get to know one another on a deeper level, and the, the common bond that we share is that we want to know Jesus more deeply too. So we're going to read the Bible together. Well, Trevor and I, we don't need anything else except for he and I to say, when do you want to meet up? And then maybe a Bible would be helpful too. <laughs> and we just need to sit down and, and read a little bit and say, okay, so what do you think about it? And, he, and obviously I would have the wisdom to share, Trevor, with you. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> It's not like that, actually. It's just reading the Scriptures and saying, how do we make sense of this? How do we live this out? Are we trying here? Are, are, is, this what we're, is this what we're trying to do? If we can have that common shared commitment, nothing can stop us. Nobody can stop us from doing that. I don't care if Christianity is illegal and, and we had... Uh, people in our, our town who are trying to stop us from doing that. I would just text Trevor. Hope you don't leave today, Trevor, after today. <laughs> I would just text Trevor and say, yeah, how about you come over a little bit later and we'll read the Bible. You know, when the when, uh, coast is clear, that's what they do in China. They have to sneak around and, and meet at times when they're not going to get caught. But the more that you do that, you have to, re- you have to think about, like, is this how I want to live? Do I want to live all out for Jesus or do I just want to sort of sit on the sidelines? I don't know. That's, I can't answer that question for you. But I do know it's difficult. I know that even for me, it's hard to say like, this is the intensity that I'm going to bring to this uh, life of following Jesus. Why is it so difficult to follow Jesus in this way and to have this shared bond of the apostles teaching and fellowship, this kind of depth of relationship that's centered upon our love for Jesus. That's the main thing. That's our common bond. Why is this so difficult? I think the number one thing is overwhelm. I'm guessing that most people sitting here today, and especially the ones who aren't here today, the reason they're not here is because of overwhelm. Overwhelm mentally. There's just so much going on. Stress and busyness, anxiety, depression, so many choices of how we can spend our time. And good things too, by the way. Spending time with family and friends, going to do fun things, having kids involved in different sports, all all good things. But we become overwhelmed by choice and ideas. So that's one major reason why it's difficult for us to follow Jesus with this kind of uh, intentionality. Simplicity helps. Simplicity helps with overwhelm. I'm trying to do everything right now. I'm trying to learn everything. Okay, let's pick one thing. (laughs) I'm trying to be everything to all people right now in my life. Let's pick one person or two most important. I catch myself in this all the time. Overwhelm is a huge challenge. Second thing that is a block for us is vulnerability. This is maybe the, the hardest part of following Jesus with others. It's intimidating. I don't want to open my life to other people. Especially in a small town, I don't want to tell other people what I'm, what I'm going through right now. I don't want to tell them that I'm afraid or that I have anxious thoughts. 
that I have doubts in my faith. I don't want to share that. I don't want to share the things that I'm ashamed of or feel guilt over from my past. I don't want to say those things out loud. I don't want anybody to know that I don't know the entire Bible front to back. (laughs) Or that I don't have the answers for some of the hard things in there. I don't want anybody to know that. Vulnerability is hard. It's maybe the most challenging part of living our faith in a really authentic, intentional way. You know what helps? Courage. Courage helps. So most of us want others to live with courage you know, and to solve the problems of the corruption of our time. But what God asks us is to live with courage ourselves. Within our hearts. Within our relationships. And the clearest way that we can live with courage is to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable. To open our hearts. To open our lives. We can do that. We could do that today. We could do that later. Courage helps with vulnerability. The last major challenge is uh, our, our habits and our traditions. I'm not trying to rail on traditions. This is not meant to be controversial. But ha- our habits, any of our habits that we have in our life and our traditions bring us a sense of comfort, which, by the way, then help with our being overwhelmed and help with us not wanting to feel vulnerable. When we have some kind of rhythm and routine that habits and traditions provide, they bring us comfort and we We desperately need comfort. We need it. We need it in the midst of this corrupt and perverse generation, don't we? You agree with that? (laughs) I need comfort. And my habits and my traditions and my life help me with that. But we have to ask ourselves, this is what was convicting to me as I was reading this text this week, we have to ask ourselves if if these are the fundamentals of our faith that have provided this kind of crazy growth in history and in the world today in other places, the apostles' teaching and fellowship, something that's paired together, close relationships with other people, with the common bond of our love and devotion for Jesus, and then breaking of bread and prayers together. This kind of intimate sort of life together as the people of God. If these are the foundations of the faith, Well, what percentage of my life is going to that? (laughs) What percentage? Me? 5%. Say probably 5%. I go to a small group on Tuesday morning. It's awesome, right? 5%. The most common, like, common denominator of powerful movements of God throughout history, the most, the, clearly the most important thing that we could do with our time as God's people. I'm committing probably 5%. Actually, 10%. Okay, I'm a pastor. <laughs> 10%. I don't know. I felt convicted about that. Like, then wh- why do I think that anything else is going to look different? Why would it turn out different? All I know is that um, when I'm sitting in those spaces, when it's the Tuesday morning small group, where actually I, I meet with some, they used to be my classmates at school, and now we do a Zoom meeting where we, we actually confess things to one another and then we pray for one another. So living this kind of a deep life. Uh, and then also when I'm in small group, 
here at the church, which sometimes we have, like Joanne, I'm going to pick on you, Joanne, you've, you've been in a small group. The times that we share like that or going on walk to Emmaus retreat and seeing people's transformation that they experienced, the most powerful moments in my walk with the Lord, period. Like everything else is nice and brings comfort and routine and you know, helps us to understand the significance of our faith. But if it weren't for those moments in small group where we just sense the presence of the Holy Spirit with one another, uh, I don't know that I would be, even be a Christian because those are the moments of transformation and growth and the felt close relationships that are forged are within those moments. So sometimes when we're in, in those, those settings, uh, difficult topics come up where people you know, bring hard things, things that we're afraid of or things that we're angry about like suffering or what's happening in the world. And you know what I tell people in those moments? Or what I ask people is, what, what can we do about that? What can we do about the decline of Christianity in the world today? Or in the United States. It's growing in other parts of the world. What can we do about that reality? What do you think? You don't have to say it out loud. What do you think? What can we do? Share? Kyle, I tell people don't share out loud and then Kyle shares out loud. <laughs> Kyle is not afraid to be vulnerable. I, you know, Kyle, that's a common bond that we have too. Yeah, we can share. I'm guessing most of you are saying we can pray. But, and those are true. But when I'm in that space of small group and these really hard, intense things come up every once in a while, I say, you are doing what you can do right now. Your willingness to be in a small group, to learn and grow in your faith, to support others in that space, you are doing everything that you can right now. That's the most important thing that we could do. And so if we neglect that, well, then we're choosing one of those other options about how do we respond to a corrupt generation and the things that we're worried about in our time. We can give ourselves to Jesus. We can open our hearts to Jesus. We can grow deeper in our faith and invite other people into that experience and allow them to see the transformation and healing that's happening within us. But that also, by the way, is the hardest thing to do. <laughs> why we need each other i can't do that by myself i can't even do that with just two other people i need a i need a whole group of people i need many influences in my life that can help remind me that the most important thing that i can do right now from moment to moment is to give my life to jesus more and more deeply i did a goals exercise the other day with uh i'm in a coaching group with pastors and they said okay Flesh out like if it was three years from now and we had a conversation and we didn't know anything about each other and you gave a report of this is what's been going on. What would you have to say happened for, for you to have a positive report? And of course, I'm like, be the best preacher in Blue Earth County. <laughs> Done. <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> you know, preaching, small groups, you know, community engagement, whatever, you know, those are my goals. And later that day, I felt convicted. 
because I said, why aren't any of my goals to say, uh, I'm going to deepen my relationships with those couple friends that I have. It's only two friends that I have that when I call them to talk, they say, well, how about I lead us in prayer? And we end that conversation in prayer. So those are the kind of relationships that I need. That's the kind of church that I would hope that one day we could become is that when we spend time with one another, we're like, well, who's going to pray? Not like, should we pray? Or, you know, oh gosh, this feels hard and awkward. But like, no, it's, who's praying? That's the hope that I have for this church. It's not that we would know all the answers. You know, not that we could even fill this sanctuary, which of course would be wonderful that we could just get really serious about our own faith journey. And to be willing to then join a group if someone texts us or calls us or puts out a clipboard. doesn't work very well. But you know, if somebody invites us and creates that space for a small group, you say, you know, this is hard, but I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because I believe that this is the way that I can live out my faith with courage. So this is, this is what I'm inviting you to today. Is First, consider your own willingness to say yes to a small group. If I were to ask you right now, or if I were to pair you up, would you revolt? And if you would, why? What's, what is that happening within your heart? Maybe it's a time thing. Pastor, I just don't have the time. I get it. Okay, so let's talk about your time. You know, Where is your time going? Maybe it's a vulnerability thing. Maybe you had a bad experience in the past. Let's talk about that. What, so what is it? What's the obstacle here? What needs to happen first? And for others of you, you're in a place where you could start a small group. And you could, or if you can't start one on your own, you could be inviting other people into it to say, gosh, I experienced this. This is just incredible what I experienced within my small group experience. Or when I went on the walk to Emmaus retreat, it was incredible. you got to do it. Why? They say, why? I don't have time. I, it, it feels awkward. I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Because this is, this is how close I feel to God and to other people when I do that. Friends, my commitment, my hope, my vision for this church is this is the kind of church that we could become. A church that is built upon a foundation of small group kind of relationships where we're actually wanting to grow closer to one another and to Jesus and that that's what we put the most time and effort and energy into and the reason that's my vision for this church and I know others of you share that vision is because I know with certainty that we will experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in those spaces that we will feel the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the peace of the Holy Spirit. We'll sense the hope and the joy of the Holy Spirit when we are intentional about living in that way. May God give us the courage to live with that kind of vulnerability and intentionality. Amen.